Hello and welcome to the January edition of The Jewish Views. Happy New Year to you. I'm Phil Dave and coming up on this programme... I'm John Kay, and I'll be speaking to Rabbi Roderick Young. His forthcoming talk for JW3, entitled Exodus 1947, Did My Father Turn the Ship Back? That tells the fascinating story of his family history. I'm Tony Honigberg. I'll be speaking to Lenny Beige himself, a.k.a. comedian Stephen First, about his forthcoming tribute night to the living legend that is... Mr. Neil Diamond. I'm Kate Fulton. I'll be finding out how the COVID-19 pandemic has inspired Scottish artist Zipporah Johnston to create some rather unique-looking Judaica. I'm Clive Roslin, and I shall be speaking to Debbie Sheldon of Work Avenue to find out how the charity will be carrying out their fundraising efforts despite the pandemic. And as if all of that isn't enough, our rabbinic thought for the month comes from Rabbi Charlie Beginsky, CEO of Liberal Judaism UK. But before all that, with a roundup of the Jewish news from the past month, I'm Vivian Krieger. Jewish groups have reacted with horror after far-right supporters, some bearing anti-Semitic slogans, were amongst the pro-Trump mob who stormed the US Capitol building in Washington, D.C., the seat of American democracy. The rioters halted the congressional count to confirm President-elect Joe Biden's election victory, but lawmakers managed to reconvene overnight after the chaotic clashes that led to five deaths and up to now 52 arrests. Photos of several far-right figures circulated on social media, with one protester pictured in a hoodie marked Camp Auschwitz. Board of Deputies President Marie van der Zyl said the scenes in Washington, D.C. were deeply distressing for all those who love America and democracy. Jewish leaders have called on the Observer newspaper to apologise for a headline that alleged Israel was denying the COVID-19 vaccine to Palestinians. The Board of Deputies said it was blatantly false. A million Israelis have had the Pfizer vaccine since mid-December. The Board of Deputies said the Palestinian Authority is responsible for providing vaccinations to West Bank and Gaza Palestinians, and the PA has not even asked Israel for help. Meanwhile, Arab citizens in Israel are treated exactly the same as Jewish Israelis and are getting the jab. Richard Sharp, a former Goldman Sachs banker, will succeed Sir David Clementy as the next BBC chairman. Mr Sharp, who is Jewish, will take over just as the debate about the BBC licence fee and the competition it faces from streaming services heats up. His closest political ally is believed to be the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, whose boss he once was. A Jewish Democrat, John Ossoff, who's 33, has become the youngest member of the US Senate as his party won control of the upper chamber following two runoff elections in the state of Georgia. Mr Ossoff unseated the Republican incumbent, 71-year-old David Perdue, whose party digitally altered his opponent's nose in a photo to make it bigger in a campaign advert on Facebook. John Ossoff accused Mr Perdue of an unoriginal anti-Semitic trope. He said the alteration had been an unintentional error. A guest due to be interviewed by Emma Barnett on Woman's Hour walked out at the last minute after questions were raised about anti-Semitic comments she allegedly made in 2017. In her first week on the job, the Jewish broadcaster was supposed to speak to actress Kalechi Okafor about the Me Too movement. Miss Barnett didn't realise her off-air chat with producers could be heard by Miss Okafor. 
Three years ago, the actress appeared to defend comments made by former BBC radio presenter Reggie Yates when he praised grime artists for not being managed by, quote, some random fat Jewish guy from northwest London. She said, I don't see what he said was wrong in a podcast. And finally, Adele Rose, the Salford-born Coronation Street scriptwriter and creator of the teen drama series Biker Grove, has died at the age of 87 after contracting pneumonia. She received several Writers Guild Awards for her work on Coronation Street, writing around 460 episodes between 1961 and 1998. The TV duo Anton Deck first found fame on Biker Grove and paid their respects to her on Twitter, writing, We will always be grateful for what she did for us and the North East. Thank you, Adele. Viv, thank you very much. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Roderick Young's father was an RAF pilot. His job was to patrol the Mediterranean Sea. His task was to look for Jews to send to the detainee camps on Cyprus. The most extraordinary part of this story is Roderick only discovered this while studying to be a rabbi. It's an amazing tale that will be told for JW3 on Wednesday, January the 20th. To find out more about it, let's speak to Rabbi Roderick Young now. Uh, Rabbi Ryan, how did you come across this story? Well, as you said, I was studying to be a rabbi in Jerusalem, and I used to come back to England to see my parents. Now, my parents had been long separated, so I saw them individually. And I was having a pint of beer with my dad in a pub. That was my father's favourite occupation, pints of beer in pubs. And my father was not Jewish. It's a very important part of my story. And uh, at this point, before I go a, a little further, I'm going to tell you that I did not know that my mother was Jewish until I was 23. And this is important because I was raised not having any of this Jewish context. When I discovered that my mother was Jewish, I approached my father and said, look, did, did you know that my mother was Jewish? And I remember that my father was actually reading a book at he wasn't the time. A pint of and beer. he looked, he wasn't drinking a pint of beer, which was quite unusual, actually. He was actually reading a book. And he looked over the top of his glasses when I said to him, Did you know that my mother was Jewish? And he said, I like a quiet life. Hmm. And it turned out that throughout the six years of his marriage to my mother, they'd never actually discussed that she was Jewish. My mother never wanted anyone to know. So when I discovered, and that's really another story about how I discovered that when I was 23, it set me off on a whole path. And that path eventually ended up with me being in rabbinical school in Jerusalem. So at what point then did you discover more about your father and about what he did in the RAF? While I was in my first year of rabbinical school, as I was saying, I would come back to, to England. And my father didn't quite know what to make of this. I mean, he was, he'd served in the Royal Air Force for 20 years. He'd been a Spitfire pilot. He had a great sense of humor. As I've mentioned, he loved his beer. He was a sort of very straightforward individual. He was not an intellectual at any way or form. He'd never been to university. He was, you know, a great mechanic. He was a great motorbike rider. He was a great car rider. And how to talk to me that I was becoming a rabbi was very hard for him. So we're sitting in this pub and we're just, you know, trying to find conversation. And my father suddenly said, 
you obviously know that I, I was sent abroad and that I was on Malta from 1946 to 1948. And I said, yes, you know, you've mentioned that before. He said, I'm not sure that I've mentioned what one of my major tasks was. And I said, no, what was that? And he said, well, I used to have to take my plane out over the Mediterranean Sea on patrol. And one of my jobs was to look for the ships that were bringing Jews illegally, and I put illegally here in air quotes, illegally from Europe into the into Palestine, which was, of course, at that stage under the British mandate. And the British government was allowing a small quota of Jews in from Europe. So these were, in terms of the British government, illegal Jews. So where were these illegal boats, technically illegal, actually coming from? They were coming from, many of them were coming from Marseille and other ports on the French coast. A few were coming from Italy, but it was mainly from France. So Jewish refugees in a terrible state, having survived the camps or survived in hiding, would be making their way across Europe to these ports. Then the Aliyah organizations would arrange for them to get onto these ships, either legally or illegally. These ships were usually, many of them were, were sort of Mississippi steamers and weird things like this that had been refitted in order to make the perilous journey across the Mediterranean. They were deeply insanitary. They were crowded with sometimes thousands of people. And one of my father's jobs was to fly his Spitfire across the seas to look for these ships and then he would radio the royal navy the radio the royal navy would then intercept the ship and bring it to the detainee camps that operated on cyprus until the foundation of israel in 1948 so they stayed in these camps in cyprus until the state of israel they did they did indeed yes behind barbed wire people who'd already been behind barbed wire in many cases now of course one should point out that the british detainee camps were nothing like the concentration camps but they were still camps that people could not leave and obviously they were not pleasant places to be so i'm sitting in this pub and and my father tells me this story and it was an appalling moment for me. I mean, at this moment, you know, I'm studying to be a rabbi in Jerusalem. I'm greatly in love with Israel. And I discovered that my father had stopped Jews from entering the country. So at I, that stage, did you want to blame him in a way for, for agreeing to do that? Were you angry? I'm not, I, I, was, I was angry. I went silent. It was a very awkward time. I remember sitting at this little round table with our pints in front of us and just silence. I didn't know what to say to him. And he could see my silence and I could sense his discomfort. And the subject was changed. I didn't have a close relationship with him because he had not brought me up. My mum had brought me up. He had abandoned us when I was five years old. And not having a close relationship sometimes means you also can't express anger. You know, being able to express hurt and anger is often with someone that you're very close to. So I didn't know what to do about that. I went back to Jerusalem and I went to back to my classes and I was being taught in a literature class by a magnificent woman called Ada Pagis. 
whom some of your listeners will know. She was the widow of one of Israel's great poets, Dan Pagis. And she put in front of us on the very first day that I was back from having seen my father, a short essay by the great Israeli novelist, Aleph Bet Yehoshua. And to my complete horror, it turned out to be a description of his time in a Cyprus detainee camp. And so I told the class and Adam my story. What happened next, I'm going to be terribly annoying and not tell you, because it was one of the more extraordinary moments of my life, and it is what I will be talking about in much greater depth when I give my lecture about all of this and about the whole historical context at JW3. So, John, you'll have to forgive me for withholding. <laughs> yes, I, I will. But uh, w w can you just tell me then what was A.B. Yehoshua's reaction or experiences in Cyprus? Was it quite harrowing? It wasn't harrowing. He was there for a very short time, actually. He was a very young man. He was there for a very short time. And then he was brought to um, a, a camp actually in Palestine, what we would today call Israel. And then he was released from that so he could participate in, in the start of Israel. So it was not harrowing for him, but he did write about it often in his life. And it was something that stayed with him. Briefly, because... Your mother's story is quite interesting, too. Can you tell us briefly about that? Sure, yeah. I was raised down in Dorset. I was raised in the Church of England. I was baptised. I was confirmed, all those Christian things that one does. But my mother would never really talk about her family. When I would ask her questions about, well, you know, what did my grandparents do? Because I didn't really know her parents and what did this and that. She would never answer the questions properly. And I never had any answers. When I was 21, at a wedding, actually in St. Paul's Cathedral, I met a very distant cousin whom I'd never met before, and she dropped a bombshell into my life. She let it be known that my mother was Jewish. How that happened is another extraordinary story. And what then transpired afterwards, as I went to find my Jewish family, is a really extraordinary story that I have talked about and lectured upon at other times. But yes, it turned out that my mother had, she had converted when she was 16 to the Church of England. She tried to completely hide her Jewish roots. But my family were a very large and involved Anglo-Jewish family who have been here since the 18th century. So I discovered I had many, many cousins in North London, you'll be surprised to hear. <laughs> Fascinating story. And I'm sure, you know, we'd like to have more time in order to hear a lot more. But certainly part of that story can be heard in Exodus 1947. Did my father turn the ship back? It's on Wednesday, January the 20th at two o'clock in the afternoon at JW3 and of course online. And we've been hearing about it from Rabbi Roderick Young. Rabbi Young, thank you very much indeed for talking to us on the Jewish Views podcast. Thank you. You're listening to the Jewish Views in association with JW3. When you think of the more successful Jewish singers, arguably Neil Diamond is right up there. Our next guest certainly thinks so. 
Lenny Beige himself, a.k.a. comedian Stephen First, will be performing the songs of the Sweet Caroline singer on Thursday the 28th of January from 8pm. The event is called Lenny Beige's Tribute to Neil Diamond, and we can hear more about that from Stephen, who joins me now. How did you get started in this business of either tribute or just really as a comedian or entertainer? Well, I kind of come from a family of classical musicians. Realised very early on I wasn't good enough to be a professional musician. Always had an interest in the business and in particular comedy. And I just sort of fell into doing comedy performance but it was really only when I I'd run various nightclubs and dabbled in stand-up but I landed on the idea of this character this lounge Jewish East End lounge singer who was perhaps better than he thought he was or you know there was an element of kind of talking a kind of someone with a slightly checkered past but actually I loved the world that he was embroiled in this kind of slightly sleazy lounge singery and we had an amazing run of shows in the late 90s and a couple of tv series and i loved this character that i created and i loved the world he inhabited it but i i didn't do a, a tribute show until a long time after that it was actually anthony newley was my first tribute show and then neil diamond which is where we are now how did you get the name lenny beige well myself and my partner in crime in terms of running clubs was a guy called Mike Lee, who's a, a, a dear friend, was my agent for a while. And we had a venue and we thought, let's do one of those cabaret clubs that, you know, we used to see in films from the 60s. We kind of came up with the idea and then we thought, well, we need a name for the host. And I like the idea of the way that kind of, uh, I don't know, a couple of generations ago when people shortened longer Ashkenazi name, you <laughs> know, me, yes. so, so he was, he was a Bajewitz and shortened it to Beige. And it was always an idea of it was less a color, more a way of life, that it was kind of the antithesis to the kind of magnolia walled color that, that we all have seemed to have grown up in, in, in Northwest London, us of a certain age. In the 1960s. Exactly. Yeah, it was, it was yeah. magnolia paint. Yeah, absolutely. Everywhere. So Lenny was always born out of a kind of reticence to the dullness of it. So the name had to be, I think, something people would go, it's a bit of a curveball. And I always like that. It's like, ah, no, no, you see, you think it might be a little bit more anodyne and dull. But no, this is something very, very colourful. And, and creating a world that was, I suppose, to, to some people was a bit bad taste. But it's show business. It was Lenny was a bit of a Liberace. He was a little bit of a Bruce Forsyth. He was a little bit of a Anthony Newley. And he was a lot of a Neil Diamond, as I discovered later on. Those of us that have a baritone voice find singing a lot of popular hits quite difficult without transposing them. But then suddenly you're like, oh, here's a singer that I can sing all of his songs and not have to do any sort of transposition. So it was, there's a sweet spot you know, in the singer's voice. And and when I sing certain songs of Neil's, you're like, ah, oh, it's just, it just kind of doesn't feel effortless, but it feels a lot easier than it does singing, I don't know, other other things, Sinatra or whatever. I must say that you do sing the songs really well. Thank you. you really do sound like Neil Diamond. But you also talk about Neil's life as well, don't you? Well, yeah, I think, I, it, it, you know, I should say it's not, I, I'm not doing an impersonation. No. I'm still singing as 
me, isn't it? But I think I've always been imbued with a kind of slightly Neil-esque voice and that kind of sort of histrionic thing that American singers often went for. But I do talk about his life because I did it with the Anthony Newley show, which was a really high concept show. This one's much more Lenny comparing himself to Neil. There's an arrogance to Lenny that is certainly not what I'm like. You know, Lenny allows me to be very cocksure of himself. He has a real swagger to himself and allows me to explore an arrogance. Are you saying then if you did it as Stephen first, it wouldn't be the same character? It wouldn't come out in the act at all? God, no. God, oh my God. It would be, it's absolutely be more slightly meeker and, oh, I don't know if I'm good enough to sing this. And Lenny's like, Wim, you, you know, Neil and I, in a way, we're exactly the same. And of course, you know, he's so deluded in his own mind. So the comedy comes from that. But as you see, you kind of have to sing the songs well enough to get away with it. So I always think parody is a very curious thing. And parody can only really be born out of a love of what you're parodying. I think otherwise it just feels very sneering and very, just not very enough. Otherwise you're just doing a tribute show, aren't you? You've expanded it and made it more interesting rather than just stand there singing Neil Diamond songs. Well, I think so. We were talking about touring this show. And because I have to say, when I do the full show with the band, I've got an incredible world-class band. But I'm just using it, obviously, because of COVID and everything, I'm just playing with a pianist this time. But, and I play myself, I play guitar myself. But the, there's something about those tribute shows that can be very... You're not seeing a Neil Diamond show. You're seeing, you know, you're, seeing a, you're seeing one guy pretending to be... So it's very stripped down. And very, so I, you know, I am primarily a comedy performer who sings, yeah. I think, in that order. So for me, it, I have to be able to crowbar some gags, some stories... And it gets very, very highfalutin in certain points. And it gets very, you know, and I talk about the kind of the, the Jewish aspect as well, which for a non-Jewish audience is really nice. And I've always done that with Lenny anyway. You know, Lenny, Lenny's Yiddish vocabulary, it, I wouldn't say it's vast, but it's enough to pique the interest of the Goyen. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of people going, what is Schwitzing? And I'm like, let me tell you what Schwitzing <laughs> is. So I, it's always been a very important aspect of Lenny, that sort of, nod back to his own East End heritage. And apart from the fact that it comes with such, as, as you know, it comes with such an incredible history anyway. And Neil Songs do as well. You've got a good character in Neil Diamond also, how he came through the Brill building and all these sort of places. Yeah, 100%. And that reluctance, yeah, I think the reluctance to be a performer himself where he's thrust into the spotlight. And Elvis, I suppose, was the same. It was like, you mean, really a very shy human being. Well, you can almost see that in Neil Diamond's early performances, where he's almost huddled over in himself, you like, trying to keep himself yeah, It's in. apologetic, isn't yeah, it? It's yeah, like a, and Neil Young had that as well. I think that was also, there was that kind of coming out of the folk tradition as well. Yes. With, you know, and Dylan, there was a kind of one man in the guitar. Yeah. And so it, it felt very lo-fi, almost kind of, there's no show. It's just business. Nobody to lean back on either, because you're not with a band, or you're not with a group around you as such. You, you are performer in front of everybody. Do you find that with yourself, though? I mean, I know you've got a pianist and you've got your own little band, but do you find also when you're performing, you've also got that little bit of shyness? The reason I ask the question, because you're performing as Lenny Beige, I'm an actor as well, and I know, right. I always tell people when I go into costume, as soon as I get that costume yeah. on, I'm that person. 
I'm not Tony oh, yeah, Honigberg anymore. I'm this other character. Yeah, 100%. Well, I mean, it's, it's a lot easier when you're putting on a wig and makeup yes. because it's even more of a mask. You know, yeah. it's a, it's a, there's, there's almost a physical transformation. I mean, for years when I would come off stage, people would be go, like, sorry, you, you, you're, I'm a bald man. And then I'm suddenly, and I'm, quite, I'm a pale man. Suddenly, I'm a, I've got a thick mop of black hair, <laughs> thick eyebrows and a tan skin. It's the polar opposite. Oh, absolutely. But I think since COVID, I, I was doing shows by myself from the house. Yeah. And suddenly, without an audience, you really are by yourself. I mean, there are audiences there because they're chatting to you, but... It's not the same reaction. It's not, but perversely, I started to really enjoy it. You know, I'm now a regular on, on Twitch, and, and I, I play games as Lenny, I do interactive quizzes, and, and it's very important. There's a shyness to perform like that as well, because without an audience, suddenly I have to overcome that shyness, and yes. that's a, a strange feeling. So there's all sorts of different layers and with this show with this diamond one obviously it'll be without an audience but from a venue so yeah. that in itself is it throws up strange challenge because you're in a big room but with no one so that's a cold room to fill yeah very curious i mean you know but i always enjoy a different challenge and, and i've always kind of embraced the odd and one doesn't have to have an audience in front of you to do a great show no would you ever perform it as Stephen first doing Neil Diamond rather than hide behind Lenny Beige? It's a good question. I probably wouldn't. I've got a, a feeling that it goes back to what we were saying before. Yeah. I'm not sure why people would want to come and see me do a show about Neil. Or anybody, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I do shows as me, as other characters, very much Steve first, you know, in character. Yeah. But I just think Neil deserves a showbiz homage, and I think I would be a bit lacking in that department. Although, having said that, I'll get up for karaoke, and what are you going to sing? It's always going to be Neil, yeah, because I know I can do a really good job. But I think with the chat in between, I think that... It's got to be your alter ego of Lenny Page. Yeah, yeah. So absolutely. This show's coming up on the 28th of January, 8pm, JW3, and they can find all the details at jw3.org.uk. And you're going to be performing in this empty room. They sell tickets in terms of, I think they're only five quid. So you buy a ticket that allows you to stream the show. Right. And I've done other shows like this, and they work really well. And I kind of always say, you know, if you're going to do it or gift it to somebody else who's a Neil fan, even if you're not, yeah. maybe your parents yeah. are, yeah. sit down in front of your laptop or a telly, and with, with smart TVs, you know, it's so easy to stream on a big... I mean, you can have a full, wouldn't say immersive, but it's a, it's a pretty good three-camera set up it's like watching it's like i wouldn't just like being there but it's certainly like watching a tv version of what i'm doing so you know it's great from your point of view when you're standing in the room you can't see anybody because they're not on camera are they? no not at all it's just just cameras yeah you've done it for so long yeah i've been doing these shows now you know online i kind of and this is this is kind of let this is self-centeredness about lenny because like, i don't care if you don't laugh at this it's a really great guy you know so in his own world in his own head, there's peals of laughter. Yes. So whether you're laughing physically in the room or not, that doesn't really matter to them. So I think, again, a lot easier to get away with it as Lenny than would be as me with no reaction. Brilliant. Stephen, thank you very much for coming on the show. That has been wonderful. You're Let very me just say welcome. again, it's the 28th of January, 
8pm, yeah. and they can book yeah. and get more information at jw3.org.uk. And if they want Indeed. any more information, we'll have it up on our website as well. That's brilliant. That's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much for coming on. Lovely. Real pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, it's hard to believe that the pandemic could offer much artistic inspiration, but our next guest might prove otherwise. The Fruit of Her Hands is a textile project that sees embroiderer and visual artist Zipporah Johnston take scraps from scrubs and face masks to make unique-looking Judaica. We can now hear more about it from Zipporah herself, who joins me now. Tell us a little bit more about the fruit of her hands. Where did the idea come from and what exactly does it entail? It started at the beginning of the pandemic. I got involved sewing cloth face masks because of charities and people that I knew that didn't have any PPE. And then I discovered that there is this whole army out there of women who are doing the same sewing scrubs and masks and scrub bags and, and things. So I, I sort of had to put my normal embroidery work on hold and I was aware as well that a lot of other women were, were kind of doing the same. You're an embroiderer by trade. Are you do you do sewing by what what do you do in your in your I was gonna say your normal life, but before you did this? I'm an embroiderer and I usually do kind of visual art style embroidery you know there's there's different types you can you can be like working in film or you can be teaching whatever and so I was making things that would end up in kind of gallery exhibitions so this is a little bit of a a change but it is a new one and so how did you get into kind of Judaica what what inspired you in that direction I guess the reason was because the reason that I got so involved in doing the sewing for of masks and things is that I felt a kind of religious imperative to do it, that I had skills that were useful and that I ought to be doing something to help. I had a friend in London who is extremely clinically vulnerable. And one of the reasons I, I really got into all of this is because her parents got sick with COVID. She fortunately hadn't been exposed, but her peers were coming in without any PPE at all. And there was just no PPE in the whole city. So we managed at that time, there was a little bit the situation was a little bit better in Scotland, so we managed to get as many disposable masks as we, we could. And then I sewed her like this big stack of reusable ones. That was at that point that people started contacting me saying, oh, my care home has none. Can you make some for us? And my GP surgery has none. Can you make some for us? What do, what does the Judaica you've created? Because I, I know you there are, um, there are Torah, what you call them, covers, mantles. So they're made out of actual pieces of masks, yeah. So the, the reason that it was it was Judaica was because it felt natural. It came from like a religious impulse. It felt natural for it to be kind of commemorated in, in a religious way. And when people are sewing their masks and their and their scrubs, there's a, there's always like little pieces left over when you're cutting out the pattern in odd odd little shapes and things. So right. I started saving my ones, thinking, you know, I I should do something with this. Like the there's something. There's something about the fabric that's been consecrated to a mitzvah that I feel I should be saving it and doing something with it. I realise there'll be lots of other Jewish women who have this as well. So I asked people to start saving their scraps. Oh, leftover beautiful. Um, so it's not actually the masks themselves. It's the scraps yeah. left over from, right. Yeah. So I wasn't sure. I kind of had this vision of there being lots of masks in a, yeah. but it's the, it's the pieces. It's almost like quilting, sort of putting all the different pieces of 
quilting together. And who works with you on the project? How did you how do you recruit? There may be people here who's desperate to uh, listening who would, who would love to join in. I asked around on social media and through kind of textile groups and the Jewish Telegraph also did an article which was kind of them so asking people to get in touch and then I had a sign up sheet on a website where people could sign up to the project and as well as sending in the scraps I kind of wanted to know a bit about the women who are doing it and why they're doing it so I asked people to answer a few questions about what they're doing and send in a photograph that represented them or their work. So some people sent in a photograph of themselves sewing, some people sent in pictures of, of the things they had made and others like of maybe people in hospitals or care homes wearing the, the PPE that they made. And so I'd like to use some of that in the final mantle and also the the exhibition. I'd like to do a little like touring Ooh. exhibition. Wow. So what what's going what is a touring what are you taking? You'll take the things that you've made and and the whole story if you like. Yeah, I need to apply for some funding to do it, but ideally it would be the mantle itself and the binder to a binder so that people in different communities could see it because people from all over the country have been involved in sending in the the scraps and the photographs and things. So it would be nice if they would then actually be able to get it in their neighborhood. And also I'd like to show some interviews with the people and the photographs that they chose to to represent them. And if anybody does want to join in, where can they go to sort of find out a bit more? Have you got a website or or is it? Yeah, the best thing is probably to go to my website, which is yarnandglue.co.uk. Yarn and glue. Yeah, there's a section called Fruit of Our Hands, which has more on the project. It's a very biblical image, isn't it, fruit? There's something very, and hands and the sort of creating, the sort of something from nothing. It's a lovely, it's a lovely idea. How did you get the name? It comes from Proverbs. So it comes from the, the, the proverb with the Aishas Chayil, who works willingly with her hands. And at the end, it's give her the fruit of her hands and let her name praise her in the gates. And so it felt appropriate for a project about women who are working willingly with their hands. What do you? What sort of host organisations are you looking for? Are you looking for to synagogues or uh, or an actual an event space? Ideally, I would like it to to be in a synagogue. I, th- I think it would be nice for the mantle to actually get use. You know, every time it's then used with the Torah, there's a certain merit accrued for the the people involved. I've been contacted actually by a liberal synagogue down south who are interested. So nothing's finalised yet, but that's a it's a good lead. <laughs> Lovely. And when all the pandemic's over, what what direction would you like to go in thereafter? How, how does this sort of idea, if you like, that we've come through something go forward? I think that at some point we will need to do to have a kind of conversation as a community about how we memorialise the pandemic. I deliberately didn't want to make a project about memorialisation of mm. The people that we've lost, sadly, because I feel like I'm not the person to do it. I haven't lost anyone very close to me because of COVID. And and I also think that, that that's like a, a communal-wide conversation that we need to think about how we want to remember this. You know, maybe as well, sometimes I think if we remembered the, the Spanish flu better, then maybe mm-hmm. this time round we would have been more prepared you know, when you think about in terms of numbers, how many people died, and yet actually it hasn't really made an impact on, on the national psyche in, this, in the same way that, say, the First World War did. 
so yeah i think that probably it's it's about it's about us as a as a community deciding how we we want to memorialize when people see that you're 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 beautiful that the embroidery and the um, it, will, it will inspire them to think about what had happened and to to, to take lessons from it if you like I, I suppose I don't want it to be like I, I don't want it to be like a cautionary tale. When I decided to do this, it was kind of more about celebrating people who stood up to help, because I don't feel I don't feel qualified to do the memorialization of, of the tragic side of it. I hope people look at it and feel inspired to help, and I also hope that people will think more maybe about the invisible labour. You know that. So many women are putting into communities and, and not it's, it's never seen. Yes, so. it's just like the sort of the people that were working behind the scenes, the women that were working behind the scenes during during the different wars, helping with armaments and, and munitions factories. And I mean, I know you say you don't want to sort of make it into a memorial in that sort of way. I, I hear that. This is this is a, a different a different dimension. But it does celebrate those women who have put a lot in behind the scenes. Deporah, thank you very much and good luck with the project. And we look forward to, to seeing it on, the, uh, on an art circuit, on the Jewish art circuit. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. We've heard quite a few times on this show how various charities have had to come up with new ways to fundraising during the pandemic. Work Avenue, the organization that helps members of the community back into work, will be doing just that when they hold a 36-hour event between the 17th and the 18th of January. Their target is £750,000. To find out how they plan on achieving that amount, I'm delighted to say we can now speak to the Chief Executive of Work Avenue, Debbie Shelton. Debbie, in the unlike case that someone listening hasn't heard of Work Avenue, please can you remind us where you are and what you do? So Work Avenue helps anyone at any stage to earn a living. We are based in London, but actually since March 2020, like everyone else, we moved all our services online and are currently reaching people across the country and internationally. We help people either find work or develop a business that they're working on. So we're here to help people who wish to be employed or self-employed. How will the fundraiser actually work, though? We, like, like you said, like a lot of people, had to cancel our traditional fundraising events So we have usually a business awards event that runs in the summer where we celebrate the best businesses, and that's a fundraiser for us, and our annual gala dinner, which was due to be in December, which of course had to be cancelled. So we're looking at different ways to fundraise, and the crowdfunding event will work that people will, we have about 100 ambassadors working for us on the day, and they'll be reaching out to their networks and asking people to donate via a link online so that we can raise funds as a, to a broader base as possible. It's almost, if you like, the old-fashioned version of the telethon coming online. So lots of calls being made, lots of WhatsApps being sent, lots of messages, links, people clicking and donating online. Very, very exciting. And, and the thing that I particularly love about it is the broad reach of people. 
you know, five pounds from somebody can help take you to our target, that ambitious target of 750,000 pounds. It doesn't have to be 100 pounds, 500 pounds or 5,000 pounds. It's the little amounts that help us grow and get us to the target. It really means that the whole community is joining in this effort to raise funds. 750,000 sounds though a lot of money, though of course we know some churches have even higher targets. Uh, are you confident you can achieve that amount? Look, Work Avenue has always punched above our weight. We have to be confident. The way the campaign works actually is really interesting. It's a matching campaign, which means that for every pound someone gives, that will be doubled and the charity will receive two pounds. So we're very grateful to our generous matching donors who have already committed so that every pound that is given will in fact be doubled. So we really hope that we will, with this doubling effort, be able to reach the £750,000 target, which will enable us to carry on our important work for the next year. Tell us, though, a little bit about what the money would go towards. The majority of people who come to us come to us at a point of despair, not knowing what they're going to do or how they're going to have the funds that they need to support themselves and their families. Our advisors work tirelessly with them with a holistic approach, helping them to come out of that despair and be able to, with dignity, earn a living for themselves and their families. So on the one hand, it will go towards supporting the work that we do, the, the general running costs and the advice that we give to people. In addition, we have several unique programs that we're running. We're running training programs at the moment to help people retrain and get into work. People can now use their time, perhaps still on furlough or at home during the lockdown to retrain and get into work, as well as very important business advice for people who have had to close their businesses or, in fact, redevelop their businesses completely and start something new, especially if they were in the hospitality or event sector. So the money will go towards directly helping all members of the community. We support over 2,000 people each year to be able to earn a living. Given the pandemic and the job losses that have come as a result of it, you must be busier than ever, though. We really are busier than ever. We have had a huge increase of the numbers of people coming to us. But I don't want people to feel despondent. I look back on our 2020 numbers, and we placed over 300 people into jobs in 2020, which given the financial situation and the economy is absolutely remarkable. There are jobs out there. We just have to be able to advise our clients and steer them to the sectors that are employing and that are still working. We know there are areas where we can train our clients and steer them to the direction where people are still employing and enable them to earn a living, as well as help the businesses now pivot and produce services that are of need to the community. If, if people want to get involved or would like more information, where should they go? They should go to our website, theworkavenue.org.uk, where everything is available. And they could also call our office 0208 371 3280, where our phones are all being manned, even though we are working remotely. I wish you the very best of luck. And the fundraising takes place over 36 hours, doesn't it? 9am on the 17th of January, Sunday the 17th, through to 9pm on Monday the 18th of January. And if anyone would like to get involved, please get in touch. It would be lovely to involve as much of the community as we can. And thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's a great pleasure. Thank you very much for speaking to us on this month's edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you. 
You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the month. And this time it comes from Rabbi Charlie Beginsky, CEO of Liberal Judaism. This month, we have entered the book of Shmot, Exodus, which introduces us to Moses. According to our tradition, Moses' life was divided into three segments, each 40 years in length. In a mere five chapters, we cover eight decades in the life of this leader, including his birth, his existence as prince in Egypt, and his initial encounters with God in the desert. However, it takes the rest of the year for us to learn about the remaining 40 years of Moses' life. Why, one wonders, is such a disproportionate amount of attention paid to the latter third of Moses' life? Surely a person's childhood and adolescence are critical in shaping their vision of the world. Perhaps this brief story of Moses' first 80 years and the lack of emphasis the Torah places on this time are meant to be perceived as a message. By speeding through the description of Moses' early and middle years, the Torah is making the statement that beginnings are less important than where we end up. In other words, A human being's worth is not determined by where that individual came from, but rather what that person does with those moments. I love the famous story of the great Israeli violinist Yitzhak Perlman, who suffered with polio as a child. The disease left him with braces on both legs and forced him to walk with crutches. On one occasion, at a concert in New York City, one of the strings broke on his violin. It went off like gunfire across the room. The audience started to applaud quietly, giving him a way to exit from the stage. But he didn't leave. He signalled instead to the maestro and the symphony began to play. And Yitzhak began to join them with only three strings. He changed and re-changed and recomposed the music in his head. On one or two occasions it looked as if he deliberately detuned the strings to get different sounds from them. And when he finished, there was an extraordinary atmosphere in the room and the audience began to cheer their appreciation. And when they quietened down, he said, It is my genius as well as my heart to make music with what remains. We have all re-entered lockdown and for so many our hearts are heavy with loneliness, isolation, fear and exhaustion. Even with the vaccine on the horizon, it can be hard to really feel on the edge of the end of this period, to see the light ahead. But this is our challenge, to continue to find ways to make music even when we feel broken. To remember that this wilderness can also be part of who we will be and what we will accomplish, even if it is only to remind us always to be grateful for the things we have missed and never take them for granted. The touch of a loved one the privilege of education, the value of those who take care of us. Thank you very much to Rabbi Charlie Beginsky from Liberal Judaism for our rabbinic thought. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. All that's left for me to do is to say thank you to our guests, to Debbie Sheldon of Work Avenue, Rabbi Roderick Young, Sephora Johnston, as well as Lenny Beige, a.k.a. Stephen First. And of course, thank you at home for listening. We must also say thank you to our producer, Sue Greenberg. 
And remember, if you would like to hear this episode or any previous episode of The Jewish Views, you can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. And please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. But from me, Phil Dave, and from the whole team, including John Kay, Tony Honickberg, Clive Rosin, and Kate Fulton, we hope you'll join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye. <laughs>